Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zanny minton The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Coming up, you'll hear some of the highlights from the latest edition of The Economist. These are just a sample of our unrivaled global analysis, unpicking the stories behind the headlines. Here's one of my colleagues to tell you what's in store this week. Thanks, Zanny. It's June the 7th, 2019. I'm Josie Delap. Our cover this week examines America's weaponization of economic tools as a means of asserting its power. But President Trump's tactics could spark a crisis and are eroding America's most valuable asset, its legitimacy. You can hear more about this on the latest edition of Money Talks, our weekly podcast covering business and finance. Coming up, the rest of the world, mostly in emerging economies, is joining the internet. Some 726 million people came online in the past three years alone. They will change the internet, and it will change them. Pro-democracy protesters are being slaughtered in Sudan, but averting a civil war in the country may require trade-offs between peace and justice. And finally, baseball is America's national pastime. It reflects the country's easily mocked, but often successful, desire to be different. These are just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. So if you'd like to read more or listen to the full audio edition, please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. First up, the second half of the internet revolution has begun. In 2007, more humans lived in cities than outside them for the first time. It was a transition 5,000 years in the making. The internet has been quicker to reach the halfway mark. Over 50% of the planet's population is now online, a mere quarter of a century after the web first took off among tech-savvy types in the West. The second half of the internet revolution has begun. As our briefing describes, it is changing how society works and also creating a new business puzzle. Most new users are in the emerging world. Some 726 million people came online in the past three years alone. China is still growing fast, but much of the rise is coming from poorer places, notably India and Africa. Having seen what fake news and trolling has done to public discourse in rich countries, many observers worry about politics being debased. From the polarisation of India's electorate to the persecution of Myanmar's Rohingya minority. On the positive side, charities and aid workers talk endlessly and earnestly about how smartphones will allow farmers to check crop prices, let villagers sign up for online education, and help doctors boost vaccination rates. Less well appreciated is that the main attractions of being online are the same for the second half as they were for the first. Socialising and play, not work and self-improvement, are the draw. Porn is popular, 
Messaging apps help friends stay in touch and let migrant workers say goodnight to their children back home. People entertain their friends and strangers on social media with goofy homemade videos on YouTube or TikTok, an app focused on short humorous clips. Cheap data plans and thumb drives bring pirated films to millions who may never have been to a cinema. Dating apps are more popular than farming advice. Video games are more popular than either. Such boons are unlikely to make their way into many UN development reports, but they are a boost to the stock of human happiness. For businesses, the second half of the internet offers a vast pool of customers. It also brings a headache. Most of these new users are too poor to spend very much. Tens of billions of dollars in venture capital money have flowed into internet startups in emerging markets, excluding China. The Silicon Valley giants have built up big user bases. Over 1.5 billion Facebook users are in developing countries. YouTube, a video site owned by Google, is increasingly dominated by non-Western users. Last year, Walmart spent $16 billion buying Flipkart, an Indian e-commerce giant. Jumia, an e-commerce firm with 4 million customers in Nigeria and 13 other African countries, floated in New York in April. Despite these firms' punchy valuations, they are still looking for sustainable business models. Reliance Geo, an Indian firm, has sunk $37 billion into building a high-speed mobile network and acquiring a big base of mostly poor users. Each Facebook user in Asia generates only $11 of advertising revenue a year, compared with $112 for a North American one. The combined revenue of all the internet firms in emerging markets, excluding China, is perhaps $100 billion a year. That is about the same size as Comcast, America's 31st biggest listed firm by sales. Nonetheless, the impact of these firms on business will get bigger in two ways. First, they will grow fast, although whether fast enough to justify their valuations remains to be seen. To maximise their chances, many are offering not just a single service, such as search or video, as Western firms tended to in their early years, but a bundle of services in one app instead, in the hope of making more money per user. This approach was pioneered in China by Alibaba and Tencent. Gojek in Indonesia offers ride-hailing, payments, drug prescriptions and massages. Facebook is pushing a digital payment system in India through its chat service WhatsApp. The second is that in the emerging world, established firms are likely to be disrupted more quickly than incumbents were in the rich world. They have less infrastructure such as warehouses and retail sites to act as a barrier to entry. Many people, especially outside the big cities, lack access to their services entirely. Beer, shampoo and other consumer goods firms could find that as marketing goes digital, new insurgent brands gain traction faster. Banks will be forced to adapt quickly to digital payments or die. Viewed this way, there is a huge amount of money at stake. The total market value of incumbent firms in the emerging world outside China is $8 trillion. If you thought the first half of the internet revolution was disruptive,
Just wait until you see the second act. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next up, violence in Khartoum could be Sudan's Tiananmen. Where just weeks ago the scent of freedom was in the air, there came the smell of smoke and cordite. The sounds of jubilant song gave way to those of automatic gunfire and the screams of the dying. In the early hours of June 3rd, Sudan's armed forces moved against pro-democracy protesters who had been holding a sit-in since April outside the army's headquarters in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. They shot and killed more than 100 people, including some children. All that remains of the carnival of democracy that had sprouted there are burnt tents and rubbish. It was the worst violence since demonstrations toppled Sudan's brutal dictator, Omar al-Bashir, in April. It was also the most gruesome. People were whipped, raped and robbed. Bodies were slung into the Nile. Doctors treating the wounded were beaten and shot. In Omdurman, across the river, rescuers fished out the bodies of people who had been hurled screaming off a bridge. Residents of the capital likened the carnage to atrocities committed by government forces and its militias during Sudan's long civil wars. Not coincidentally, the bulk of the bloodshed this week was the work of the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, a paramilitary force linked to the Janjaweed, a militia responsible for genocide in Darfur. Thousands of its troops now patrol Khartoum. On June 3rd, the Transitional Military Council, which took over after Mr Bashir's fall, turned off the internet and phone networks. Its leader, Abdel Fattah Buran, said the junta would form an interim government and hold elections in nine months. The Sudanese Professionals Association, which has spearheaded the uprising since it began last December, rejected the plan. Trouble had been brewing for weeks. Protesters and the junta were tussling over who would control the country's transition to democracy. Negotiators had agreed on some issues, such as the establishment of a civilian-led parliament and cabinet and a three-year transition before elections. But talks stalled over the contentious issue of who would be in charge of the highest decision-making body, the Sovereign Council. To break the deadlock, the protesters declared a national strike, while the junta turned to its powerful deputy head, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, who is widely known as Emetti, and his RSF. A former camel rustler who had dropped out of primary school, Mr Dagalo rose to prominence after turning his clan of Arab nomads in Darfur into a gang of the Janjaweed. Horse riders from that militia suppressed a rebellion 15 years ago by burning villages, slaughtering civilians and raping the women who couldn't escape. Today, money and diplomatic support from anti-democratic Arab regimes have emboldened the junta. 
Mr. de Gallo had previously sent at least 3,000 mercenaries to fight for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, in Yemen. His forces are well-equipped and battle-hardened, and he has rich friends. The junta's call for financial help was quickly answered. Saudi Arabia and the UAE sent $500 million and promised another $2.5 billion. Egypt's security forces, no strangers to coups, are thought to have offered advice. Yet the junta's swift resort to violence may have increased the risk of civil war. It could perhaps have let the protests gradually run out of steam. Instead, it unleashed death just before the start of Eid, the festival to celebrate the end of the holy month of Ramadan. The country will never forgive them for gunning down innocents the day before Eid, says a doctor from Khartoum. Soldiers and policemen not affiliated with the RSF are said to be furious about the bloodshed. Troops in several garrisons have mutinied and tried to break into armories to grab weapons to fight the RSF. The killings also raise questions over where exactly power resides. Mr de Gallo, who denies orchestrating the violence in Khartoum, the government also claims the RSF was not involved, is thought to have presidential ambitions. If so, he may seek to undermine any transition that weakens him. He needs state power to protect his interests, says Magdi El-Ghazouli of the Rift Valley Institute, a think tank. He is effectively terrorising the population of Khartoum into submission. He is not the only one with an incentive to thwart democracy. Mr Bashir kept himself in power for 30 years by playing factions off against one another. Many in the junta fear a new order, especially if it establishes the rule of law. Some fear justice for atrocities in Darfur or elsewhere. The latest killings give the top brass even more reason to worry. The junta is basically in the same exact boat as Bashir, who faces charges of genocide at the International Criminal Court, the ICC, says Ahmed Khadouda, a political analyst. Demonstrators, meanwhile, are enraged by the betrayal of their democratic revolution. From Al-Hajj Yusuf, an outlying neighbourhood of Khartoum, come reports of fresh protests suppressed by gunfire. In hospital corridors, doctors and patients alike sing protest songs, vowing not to abandon their struggle. Averting a civil war in Sudan may require trade-offs between justice and peace, Outsiders, including Western governments and the African Union, have condemned the violence and called for a civilian-led transition. But many, including Britain, also insist that those responsible for war crimes be held accountable and handed over to the International Criminal Court. The fear is that Sudan may get only one of these things or neither. And finally, Americans have gone to great lengths to deny their national pastimes foreign roots. You might not get this crazy game, warned Tom Heights, a historian, before attempting to induct a crowd of baseball scholars into the mysteries of town ball, an early form of baseball played in northeastern states until around the 1870s 
Town ball is recognizable to modern Americans by its rounded bat, four bases or stakes, and the batsman's need to get around them. Yet the fact that he may hit all around the plate, must run if he so much as foul tips the ball, and that fielders wear no protective glove was perplexing to some of the scholars. As the crowd divided into two teams on the grounds of James Fenimore Cooper's garden in Cooperstown, New York, this gave Lexington a sly advantage. Though he had never played baseball, he had played cricket and rounders, two English games to which town ball is closely related. It follows that baseball is a close cousin to them too, which has been even more confounding to the game's aficionados. Indeed, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, whose annual symposium on baseball and American culture the town ballers were attending, is testament to the lengths Americans have gone to to deny their national pastimes foreign roots. To this day, many of the thousands who visit the museum to stand in awe before a bust of Babe Ruth or Jackie Robinson believe baseball was invented in Cooperstown one day in 1839 by Abner Doubleday. The symposium's participants were wise to that hoax, of course, but not entirely to a related myth. Many believe baseball's 19th-century rise to displace cricket, formerly America's most popular game, was propelled by its singularly American qualities. That is another sort of nonsense, and both sorts are revealing, as is the way with baseball, of broader national traits. Baseball's rise from a village green activity with tangle roots in English games to one of the first professional sports was propelled by elite organisers and entrepreneurs in America's growing cities such as Albert Spaulding, the sporting goods tycoon. They saw the political and commercial gains to be had from promoting a uniquely American game. They therefore raided cricket clubs, of which there were 100 in Philadelphia alone, for talent, while promoting baseball's native qualities. It was our game, the American game, crowed Walt Whitman, who loved a national myth. Anglophobia, stirred by Britain's trade with the Confederacy during the Civil War and the prominence of Irish Americans among early ball players, assisted this process. So did a flexible view of what baseball's intrinsic qualities were. Mostly the game was held to be dynamic, where cricket was languid, yet at least one commentator in the 1870s considered baseball less dangerous. The Doubleday scam completed the mythologizing. Alarmed by the persistent claim that baseball evolved from rounders, Spalding bankrolled a commission to produce a better explanation. Patriotism and research, its chairman declared in 1889, indicated that the game was invented by Doubleday, the soldier credited with firing the first shot for the Union at Fort Sumter. This fiction was wildly popular and still is. The Hall of Fame acknowledges, on a plaque in its inner sanctum, that the Doubleday myth is untrue, yet the fact that the plaque also describes Cooperstown as baseball's spiritual home helps keep its spirit alive. There are two major morals to this history. The first is that America is less exceptional because, like baseball, more of a European-accented hybrid than it often considers itself to be.
And there are costs to that self-deception, including, as the flip side of American exceptionalism, isolation in sport and otherwise. Few Americans will be aware that ten finalist countries are currently contesting the quadrennial Cricket World Cup, followed by two billion people in those countries alone. Baseball, which has spread more modestly and remains fundamentally a domestic game, is parochial by comparison. Yet America's belief in its exceptionalism, exaggerated as it may be, is at the heart of the country's achievements. It may be, baseball suggests, their essential feature. That is not merely because the game reflects the triumphs and tensions of the society that plays it. All national sports do that. Thus, Brazilian football and Indian cricket represent the binding of disparate peoples by a common culture and the problems that plague them. Brazilian football is riven with inequality, as Brazil is. Indian cricket is factional and corrupt. That American baseball is the story of America over the past 150 years, a common endeavour marred by periodic storms between communities, between capital and labour, inside and outside the ballpark, is, in that sense, momentous but unsurprising. What sets it apart is the cultural heights to which the game's mythologizing has lifted it. This is most obvious in its literature, from the novels of Bernard Malamud and Philip Roth to the non-fiction of Roger Kahn and Michael Lewis. American sports writing is generally superior because America takes popular culture so seriously. The gathering of 170 academics to a conference on baseball was another sign of that. Yet the boundless themes of national identity, striving and becoming, of real and imagined Americas and more, that flow from baseball's unique status, make its canon the richest by far. They are also reflected in the game's popularity, especially among those with the most detached view of America, the millions of immigrants who have arrived over baseball's history. For Jews, Mexicans, Irish, among others, baseball has been a point of entry to American culture. Roth called it, This game that I loved with all my heart, not simply for the fun of playing it, but for the mythic and aesthetic dimension that it gave to an American boy's life, particularly to one whose grandparents could hardly speak English. Baseball is a fun game indeed, and also, as the English say of cricket, more than a game. It is a symbol of Americans' belief in their own extraordinariness. It also represents what a splendidly self-fulfilling prophecy that delusion has often turned out to be. I'm Josie Delap, and in London, this is The Economist. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.